Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. Here we are. Welcome to another episode of the Beautiful Animal Podcast. Welcome. I am your host, Andrew Motherfucking Bosch. I'm your other host, Tyler Motherfucking Cole. <clears throat> anyway, welcome back. Thank you guys for joining us once again for another episode of Beautiful Animals Podcast. Your favorite podcast brought to you by your favorite people. <laughs> That's what <Obviously>. happened. <laughs> Yeah. This is uh, my favorite podcast that I do. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Here we are yeah. in the studio once again. We're in a new studio. We new moved. Space. We moved. New it's space. a little quieter, a little uh, more secluded, a little more private, so we can get the party going. Get a little rowdy. Yeah, get, get drink more caffeine. Just <laughs> do, 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 do a little more crazier shit. Caffeine is a central part of the f- process for yeah, fueling your- podcast enhancing drug. Yeah, I think it's going to be better in here, too. I'm excited. It's 2022. Has been for a minute. Has been for a minute, but January is like a training wheels month. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So you know, we're just getting getting to the, the end. Yeah, it's winter time here in beautiful Northern California. Things have been pretty cold for it's California. Been pretty cold. We've been telling some cold stories too. It's the lots Shackleton of cold stories. Things got pretty cold there. Chili. Chili beans. I. Uh, I've been cold. Yeah. Do you have that pellet stove going at your place? Is it's that- cold and it runs. It, it warms it up a little bit, but then it gets cold when I turn it off. Nah, weird. <laughs> <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> I have time to tell that story again. <laughs> and then what happened? Did you find $15? That's a $20 story. Yeah, for real. Oh, man. Well, on the theme of cold, cold stories, today we're going to talk about one of the deadliest days and one of the deadliest seasons on Mount Everest. So just a little trigger warning to our beautiful animals audience out there. This is a story that contains some pretty graphic stuff, some death and some, you know, frozen limbs and some fuck yeah <laughs> some dark stuff so it's a uh, it's it's sad it's uh as so long as no heads do- up. as long as no dogs die no dogs die they don't use dogs on mount everest anyway so what we're talking about today <laughs> is a a book called into thin air by john krakauer and this book is john krakauer's personal account of the events that occurred that season in 1996 on Mount Everest. John Krakauer is and was an author and a writer and a uh, journalist for Outside Magazine. And basically, he he was a mountaineer and mountain climber and had been for most of his life. He'd taken a pretty long break from it. And then this opportunity came up where Outside Magazine wanted to do a whole piece on guiding, guided trips to summit Mount Everest because okay. it's this kind of, it had kind of popped up and kind of really blew up in the late 80s and early 90s. Like before, it was just Trips to Mount Everest began as, you know, same thing with Shackleton's expedition of the South Pole being sponsored by governments, you know. Over the years, Everest kind of became attainable to not the everyday guy, but the person who was mild, you know, in good enough shape. And has enough money. And has 60 grand to spend to pay a guide to get them to the top of Mount Everest. And these this business kind of formed around getting people with enough money up to the top. And so these different guiding tour, I'm not going to call it a tour guide, but guide agencies uh, yeah. developed and started taking people up there. And 
anyway, so John, so Outside Magazine wanted to do an article about that because like all these people were going up there. And so <clears throat> they reached out to John Krakauer because they knew, I mean, he was a adventure guy. He was a mountaineer. They offered to pay for him to take a guided trip to summit Mount Everest. I mean, he would just have to set aside, you know, like six months of his life Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and risk this incredibly dangerous So was he journey. just taking one trip or was he like kind of working with the guides making a bunch of trips and then just kind of no he was just gonna go once okay yeah i mean it's you know you go once a season yeah yeah it's not they don't it's a huge endeavor yeah like the whole process of getting to the top of mount everest takes a couple months really okay oh yeah number one mount everest is out in the middle of the himalayas and there's nothing close by you can't like be in a town right at the bottom of the mountain and then like just go up it and be back in a town like Everest Base Camp is its own like little town, but everything there <clears throat> has to be walked in from you know many miles away, walked in because it's all at this really high elevation. Like it's it's even difficult to get a helicopter up there. Oh yeah, because they can't fly that high. So it's 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 incredibly logistically challenging. In order to have enough oxygen to get to the summit, you have to have people go up most of the way. And leave oxygen up there, yeah. and then come back down. That sounds familiar. From and then the, go up. The yeah, Shackleton yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah, you got to make these drops. And so the whole enterprise of getting anyone to the top of Mount Everest takes a long time. You also have to acclimatize, right? Twenty nine thousand feet. Twenty nine thousand one. Is that right? Well, it's actually like exactly twenty nine thousand is what I've heard. And but when they measured it, they're like, "Well, people won't believe that we." <laughs> measured it pretty precisely if it was said exactly 29,000 so they were like well, let's just make it 29,001 they say it's 29,032 okay so that's probably like before they had like real precise yeah measuring stuff oh, yeah cool. if you look in the textbook and it just says 29,000 exactly you're like well they didn't eh, bullshit. that's an estimation yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah it's really high yeah that's really high you... where are we at right here we're about at 140 yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we're at 140 150 something like that yeah. Mount Shasta is like 14,000 feet. Yeah. So it's like twice Mount Shasta. Yeah. In order to acclimatize clients to get them up to the top of the Mm -hmm. mountain, they do a series of expeditions to greater and greater elevations and then back down. Right. So they'll, they'll go up to 21,000 feet and then they'll go back down to base camp and then they'll go up to 26,000 feet and they'll go back down to base camp and then they'll go up to 27,000 feet and then they'll go back to base camp. Anything over, I believe it's 26,000 feet is known as the death zone. <clears throat> Why is it called that? Because <laughs> the lack of oxygen at that altitude can give you a number of diseases. Well, not diseases. It can just kill you in a bunch of different ways. The bends. Can you get the bends? No. Just by, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get the bends. <laughs> Basically, anything above 26,000 feet can kill you in a lot of different ways because there's no oxygen. And the low pressure also just wreaks havoc with your whole cardiovascular and neurological system so sounds, sounds like the bends to me i mean it's kind of <laughs> the bends mess you up too yeah. but it's not it's different bends. it's different i mean first of all they got to get all these supplies up to different parts of the mountain in this particular expedition they had base camp and then camp one two three and four and then the summit right and they you know each leg of the journey has its own difficulties and they're having sherpas go up and supply each camp in advance yeah and be there and cook the meals and like put rope fixed ropes in at the difficult parts so they can clip in and go up them easily. So it's this it's a huge logistical 
challenge. There's a lot of moving parts that have to be organized and implemented yeah. and all of it takes time. And then during that whole process, you've got your clients. If you know, if you're the guide, you've got these clients that you have to with different skill levels you know, an ability that you have to get up and down and get up and down to different elevations on the mountain so that their bodies can acclimatize so they don't just die super easily once you get them above 26,000 feet. So John Krakauer is our narrator for this book, and he, the book that he wrote, Into Thin Air, is our primary source for this episode, and it's his personal account of the events on Mount Everest in 1996, which were pretty devastating it was the deadliest <laughs> deadliest season on mount everest ever yeah more people died that season and specifically on the day in question oh uh, just one day all in one day damn yeah <laughs> then i think any other season on everest barring one event where there was a volcanic eruption somewhere else hmm. interesting so and a lot of people died and he was there and he's a writer <laughs> so we wrote a book about it <laughs> yeah uh, there's also a movie, Into Thin Air. Uh, it's not that great, but uh, <laughs> I watched yeah. it. Yeah, I watched it right after I read this book a couple months ago, and it's it's pretty messed up. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this on on this particular season and this book kind of follows these two different groups. Uh, John Krakauer was with a group called Adventure Consultants, which is owned by a mountaineer named Rob Hall from New Zealand. But it also follows the tale of this this other group called Mountain Madness, which was led by a guy named Scott Fisher. So Scott Fisher was actually from, or lived in Seattle where John Krakauer lived. Uh And when he was first sort of approached by Outside Magazine, when they were first kind of discussing the idea of him going and summoning Mount Everest and writing about it, he and Scott Fisher, he actually knew Scott Fisher because they were both mountaineers. Were they homies or did they hate each other? They're homies. Okay, good. John Krakauer and Scott Fisher were homies. He was like, yeah, you should go with me. I'll take you up there. I have a fucking guide company. Mountain madness. But then I think the adventure consultants and Rob Hall actually ended up giving Outside Magazine a bigger discount oh. on the thing yeah, and kind of like bought John Krakauer out from under Scott Fisher oh, and Mount Madness. So there's a little bit of tension there. And there's a little bit of tension between these, these two groups because, I mean, they're both trying to summit Mount Everest. They end up trying to summit on the same day. They, they're both at a point like Guide has been getting more and more popular. And, you know, John Krakauer was a writer for a magazine. There's another woman called uh, named Sandy Pittman. Like, she would be an Instagram influencer today. Yeah. <laughs> she was, like, a kind of a starlet and in the public eye. Yeah. Anyway, so exposure was a big part of the thing. They were, they, both of these groups, both Rob Hall of Adventure Consultants and Scott Fisher of Mountain Madness, realized that whichever one of them could kind of have the more successful outing this yeah. season would be launched into a position of even more, even greater prominence. Yeah. And probably reap considerable financial benefits out of the deal. Oh. And that... Because that's why we're all there. That's why Mount Everest was put there for financial reasons, right? Dude. Yeah. We might get into it a little bit later, but at the end of this book, there's a kind of a great quote from the child of a Sherpa. We'll get to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not there for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, John Krakauer is... uh, I mean, his obviously he's got this is a, he he survived and many people died on this mm-hmm. trip. So he has a little bit, you know, of PTSD from this experience. He's bet, pretty yeah. tra- traumatized from this whole experience. Not only did he almost die, but these people that he had grown to be friends with, many of them died. The tone of the book reads, in many, to me, as kind of condemnation of guiding people that aren't mountaineers mm-hmm. to the top of Mount Everest. Like they they don't turning that into an industry, bringing people that don't belong on top of a big mountain like that. Bring him up there. Yeah. And you put a lot of other people at risk Definitely. in order to do that. Yeah. Like, it's one thing if you're a mountaineer 
and you love climbing and you propel yourself to the top of Mount Everest. That's yeah. one thing. But like, but if you're some business guy, yeah, with and just putting, a shitload of money, right? And in order for to get you to the top of the mountain, you got to put twenty other people at risk. Yeah, to get up there, and they're they're doing it for financial reasons. I mean, a Sherpa can be paid like twelve hundred bucks mm-hmm. to guide someone to the top of Mount Everest. These are the local people. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't sound like very much, but the average uh, annual wage of a person in a regular person not guiding Mount Everest is one hundred sixty dollars a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So twelve hundred bucks is you know <laughs> a lot of money, and you're putting these people who are like finan- like it becomes something they're financially dependent upon. So they're putting their lives at risk to carry your shit yeah. up the mountain, so you don't have to. Yeah. Exactly. Because you're an American business person, or and you want to you want to be cozy on your way up there. You don't want to carry too much shit. Yeah, you want to not have to train for decades. <laughs> your whole fucking life living. Yeah, the- you can tell that just in the way that he writes it that there's a pretty strong condemnation of that as an industry. Like it's just too risky, and it just puts too many people in harm's way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good that he that he realized that. And yeah. Not just like he actually, I mean, not all journalists will take as opinionated a stance. Yeah. As he did. I don't know how he feels about this now. He wrote this book right after. He mm-hmm. wrote it in 1997. Yeah. And he definitely throws a little blame on That's a good. few of the yeah. characters in this that we're going to meet uh, over the course of the story. He definitely blames or questions the decisions made by a lot of the guides on the mountain that day. Yeah. And he's gotten a lot of condemnation from those guides and from their families for assuming to know their motivations essentially. Yeah. Um and questioning their judgment decision making and for the role that he played later on, he gets some condemnation for he could have done more <laughs> to yeah. help people, but we'll get into it. So, but first I just wanted to kind of introduce the cast of characters. So adventure consultants, that's Rob Hall from New Zealand. He is the owner and founder. Mm-hmm. And is, is he on the trip too? He is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's himself and two other guides, Mike Groom and Andy Harris. So the three of them are going to lead their 10 clients up to mm-hmm. the top of Mount Everest. Okay. 10 and, clients plus a bunch of Sherpas and yeah, plus yeah. like 20 Sherpas and all nice. that. Yeah. And then Mountain Madness is another group, and that one is owned and founded by Scott Fisher. And it's him and another guide, Neil Beidelman, and another guide, Anatoly Bukarev, are going to guide their eight clients up to the summit. Okay. Right. They, both Scott Fisher and Rob Hall, have summited Mount Everest several times prior, mm-hmm. right? That's why they're guides. Um, and built these businesses up, and, and they're very successful. Rob Hall is known as being super methodical. Super well-planned, slowly but surely, everything in its right place at its right time. That's his approach, whereas Scott Fisher is kind of like a wild man. Yeah. He's kind of like, yeah, let's just go. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he's got a totally different affect well, and a totally different approach. You can almost hear it in the name. Like, it's Adventure Consultants. Mm-hmm. Like, and Mountain ma- Madness. Mountain Madness. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it's awesome. definitely in keeping with their characters. Yeah. And you'll see, you know... Even their approach, like when they're when they're going up to acclimate, Rob Hall has all of his clients stick together, and he has prescribed days and times that they're going up to certain altitudes and coming back. They all mm-hmm. stick together. They all do the exact same thing. Scott Fisher, on the other hand, like he gets them up to a certain altitude, like to base camp, and he has a couple of prescribed days. But other than that, over the like four week acclimation period, he's just letting them climb. He's just letting them do what they want. Yeah. And some of them are going off alone, and he's just like, okay, you climb up here. <laughs> Just make sure you spend at least two days above 25,000 feet okay. and then come back. Like, he yeah. doesn't, he's not super hands-on. Everyone's a little more self-directed. You know, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but it does seem like his team are people that are more able to do that kind of thing. 
maybe he was a little bit more picky about who he, oh, I see, who yeah. he chose to go. Like, yeah, he's not just going to say, yeah. They all he... had more climbing experience, maybe. Some of them didn't. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We'll get to one in particular as we go. But um, So they both, they just have completely different approaches to begin with. But our guy, John Krakauer, who's the narrator for this story, is with Rob Hall's group. This whole acclimation period uh, that I kind of have mentioned, and there's a lot of lead up, and we're going to you know skip some of that just to kind of summarize. And I, I think where we'll pick up this story is, like I was saying before, there's uh, four different camps. There's camp one, two, three, and four. Camp four is on what's called the South Call, which is this sort of like shoulder of the mountain at 26,800 feet. Uh-huh. So it's, it's, it's the last camp before you try and summit to the top yeah so it's kind of a good place to kind of chill and acclimate it's actually not because oh. it's a <laughs> because it's above twenty six thousand feet you don't want to spend any more time there than you have to okay. and you want to be on supplemental oxygen basically the whole time yeah so even is it, while you sleep is it just like once you get up above that zone that we talked about the twenty six thousand feet approximately the once you get above that elevation, you want to go to the summit and back down like as quickly as possible. You want to spend as little time in that exactly. zone. Exactly. Okay. They call it the death zone. Death zone. Uh, oh, yeah. Any, above 26,000 feet. You want to spend as little time as possible, Yeah. like you just said, above that zone. So Camp 4 is not a place to stay and hang out. It's a place to get to, rest for a little bit, and then assault the summit. Mm-hmm. Right? And why I'm mentioning that is I'm going to skip over a little bit the first three camps. Yeah. We're going to pick up this story when they get to camp four, when basically. they start dying, when all the <laughs> when the shit starts to go down, <laughs> we no. don't want to hear a story about things going smoothly. Well, the first part does go really smoothly. I mean, they and that's why we're not talk about it. That's why we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> they they do their acclimatization. I mean, let me, I'll just say like none of it is easy. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. None of it is easy. Even from base camp, even getting to base camp isn't that easy. Going from base camp to camp one, you have to go through this really really treacherous area. It's basically just huge pieces pieces of ice that you have to navigate through okay. and it changes every season uh-huh. it's different every season yeah, because it's, it's like the sort of the bottom slopes of the mountain and it's so every season the different snowfall and rainfall and precipitation changes the shape of all these different seracs seracs is the word i was trying to think of which are basically huge ice just huge pieces of ice, ice. boulders yeah. like ice not boulders, quite yeah. glaciers but like so like there's different canyons and different cracks and different crevasses. It's all moving all the time. Mm-hmm. So going from base camp to camp one, you have to navigate all that shit. And then once you're at camp one, then you're starting more elevated ascents. And so then you go to camp two, spend some time there, go to camp three, spend some time there. I think part of their acclimatization, they went to camp three and then back to camp two. Okay. And then hung out at camp two just because even even the elevation difference between camp two and camp three yeah is harder on you so yeah. you can, you don't you can't stay there and rest up yeah. like your body's working harder at rest there than it is like building up energy so you you can't even like above camp two you're not really resting yeah and then like we refer to the death zone as at whatever it is twenty six thousand feet yeah it's not like twenty five thousand eight hundred feet is like not death zone <laughs> yeah. it's just a little less death a little less deathy yeah, yeah. so and it changes day to day and Exactly. Again, I don't know why they call it the death zone. You want me to go into that a little bit? (laughs) I will. We can talk about these two different conditions. One's called HACE, H-A-C-E, and one's called HAPE, H-A-P-E. HAPE, H-A-P-E, is uh, high altitude pulmonary edema. That's the name of the sickness in which you're basically, you produce excess fluid in your lungs, which makes you very uh, fatigued and weak. Hmm. Yeah, usually fluid in the lungs. Yeah, you don't want that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And then H-A-C-E, HACE, is high-altitude cerebral edema, 
which is where you get excess fluid in your brain. Hmm. Both of these things are uh, potentially fatal, right? And if they're not treated immediately by getting you out of altitude, you'll die. People kind of develop these things at random. You never know if you're going to get it. You never know when you're going to get yeah, it. Yeah, just... And it's not... And Being on supplemental oxygen can help you avoid it, Yeah, but not necessarily. But it's, yeah, because it's not just the oxygen that's causing the, the damage. Pressure. It's the pressure. Yeah. yeah, it's the lack of pressure. And since we're defining those, we should probably... Since we made jokes about the bends, we should maybe define it in case somebody doesn't know what the bends are. Okay. It's just a sickness, basically, of when you're diving, going from the high pressure. If you go from the high pressure of deep, deep water... Up to sea up level. To sea, yeah. yeah you, Too you fast. That, yeah, you, yeah. Basically, it causes a bunch of pressure problems in your blood and yeah, I mean, excess it, nitrogen and whatnot. It it's nitrogen. Yeah. yeah. It's the nitrogen, like, uh, dissolved gases come out of the solution in your bloodstream, yeah. forming gas bubbles in the circulation. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It's just like go from yeah. high pressure to normal pressure instead. And the moral are... of the story is that our bodies are designed to operate at sea level, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> pretty much. And that's why the Sherpas are so so valuable because they're kind of more optimized for those higher, not the high, not the extreme, but they're every human is valuable. Okay. Yeah. But no, well, I mean, <laughs> that's no, why yeah. they're they're a, they're they're valuable uh, in this story. And exactly. Their and, body, they're like evolutionarily. Yeah, their more... group has lived at high altitude for yeah. many, many, many generations, and so they're more more accustomed and more acclimated yeah. to high altitude. Where was I? Camp 2 to Camp 3. Yeah, so they, they go to Camp 2, they push up to Camp 3 as part of an uh, acclimatization exercise, and they come back down to Camp 2, and then they're prepping for, like, the assault on the summit. Because from there... It's kind of cool they call it the assault. I don't know. I call it the assault on oh, the you summit. Do. Yeah, okay. I don't know if they actually use that term. Probably not, but I like it. Because it's, it's like, a, yeah, you just charge in, charge out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so then... From Camp 2, they, they hike up to Camp 3. It takes, I don't know, eight, nine hours. Each one of these things they do in like a day. Mm-hmm. But it takes a long time. The other thing about being at high altitude is it's not like hiking, like you and I are hiking around here. Like, it'll take like three or four steps. Stop. Pause. Breathe. Take three or four that steps. Sounds, that sounds like how I hike. <laughs> <laughs> you're a savage hiker, dude. <laughs> but yeah, once you're up at that, I mean, even with the supplemental oxygen... It's super challenging. Yeah. So from Camp 4, which is 26,000 feet, to the summit, which is, like you said, almost exactly 29,000 feet, mm-hmm. I was, I'm going to say it's only 3,000 feet of elevation. That's it. I mean, yeah, but it is something that, like, I could well, yeah. run that, you know, like on yeah. a trail run comfortably at sea level in, yeah. you know, a couple hours. Right? The difference between one zero to 3,000 is... is yeah, and then much different than the difference. Much different than the difference. It's <laughs> yeah. huge. When you know the way they time it, they they try to leave by 11 p.m. to get to the summit by 1 p.m. Okay, the yeah. following day, and we'll talk about turnaround times in a little bit. But one of the things that is important in mountaineering, especially with Mount Everest, of course, yeah. is having a very hard rule about when you're going to turn around. Yeah, and if you don't hit that. Like at that time you turn around, whether you're at the summit or not, whether you're yeah. 50 feet from the summit or not. Oh, yeah. Which is super difficult to do when you yeah. put in all this work and all this effort to get to the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah. And you're and you're like, OK, our turnaround time is 1 p.m. And, and it's like you're... 1245. And you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and your phone starts going off saying hey, it's time to turn around. You're like, yeah. No. You're like, I'm 50 feet from the summit. But yeah. uh, anyway, so that if you what is that? How many hours is that? That's 12, 13, 14 hours yeah. to get that 3000 feet. And then from, back. 14 hours to get to the top. Yeah. And, and then, then you have to get back. Yeah, which yeah. probably takes about as long. Well, I think it's a lot faster on the way back. Because you can sit down on your butt and slide down. There's some areas you can. Yeah. Yeah. The group that John Krakauer is going with, led by Rob Hall, he had had uh, a few, like two previous 
actually three previous successful summits on May 10th. They all just happened to be on that day, like three the three different years. Yeah. So he, you know, you you go up, you you try to time it so that there aren't storms or anything, yeah. but it's a pretty narrow window. And then you get up there and you're <coughs> thinking you're going to go on this day, but you kind of got to watch the weather. And then as soon as it clears, you go for it. Yeah. And three of, I think it's either two or three of his previous attempts, he summited on May 10th. Yeah. Just, so just a, as a matter of just chance. Just happened or... to be that. Yeah. You know, he's shooting for that window, yeah, but yeah. it could have been the 8th, could have been the 11th, whatever. Yeah. So they're shooting for that same window. They're shooting for May and 10th. And so this time he's like, it's got to be the 10th, man. Yeah. He's, he's not yeah. solid about it, but that's what he's shooting for. Yeah. Now. There's Adventure Consultants and that group trying to go up the mountain. There's Mountain Madness and that group trying to go up the mountain. There's also a Taiwanese group okay. and a South African group and maybe one other group. So they all all the different groups, do they kind of stick to the same route so they keep running into each other? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the problem. There are three routes up the mountain, but there's one from this side, one from the Chinese side, uh, which is the north side, and one from the east side. The east one is extreme, much more difficult. The Chinese side is also difficult. The south side, the south route, is uh, probably the least difficult, and that's the way they're going. Like you just caught on to, or what you just realized, you're like, oh, they all go in the same route? Yes. And there's a lot of groups trying to make it up the mountain at the same time, and this is going to be a problem later on. Rob Hall, a very experienced Everest mountaineer, knows this is going to be a problem. So he sits before all of the groups start going up the mountain, because they're all shooting for basically the same window mm-hmm. of time as well. Yeah, because it's... Yeah because it's the best time before they go up the mountain he says like okay we gotta agree on kind of an order because if we all try and go for the same day it's gonna be a bottleneck we're not we're not all gonna be able to make it so he kind of talks to the other group leaders and stuff and they kind of try and figure out a plan one group agrees to go before his group and then it's supposed to be his group and the mountain madness and then there so they they do their acclimatization you know then they're like okay weather's looking pretty good let's start our assault on the mountain so from camp three they make the journey, uh, adventure consultants and their group, from Camp 3 to Camp 4 with relatively little issue, but it's incredibly difficult. John Krakauer, he's telling his own story, right? And he rolls into the Camp 4 around like 5 or 6 p.m. and is just dead exhausted and tries to lay down and sleep. Yeah. The South Call is this like exposed shoulder of Mount Everest that's about four football fields long and two football fields across yeah right and on either side is just a sheer drop okay down and down yeah <laughs> to and like it's 7, just like feet. kind of a narrow pass yeah, they, yeah. it's and it's a shoulder of the mountain okay right yeah. so if you think about you're trying to go up a mountain right you need to go up sort of the least steep way yeah so they come up from this the south side basically up to this shoulder of the mountain that kind of flattens off mm-hmm. and it's flattened enough that you can put tents there yeah and camp for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of old camps. There's a whole bunch of empty oxygen bottles there. Nice. There's stashes of oxygen bottles that have been brought up by Sherpas in advance mm-hmm. for them and their group to go up. So there's these different little campsites, but they're all kind of all around each other, yeah. huddled together on this really exposed piece of ice and rock. One of the things, I mean, it's flat, so it's a good camp area, but another thing that lends itself to being a good campsite is since it's flat and windy, Snow doesn't accumulate there. Okay. So you can like pitch stuff. But also it's windy. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's windy. So, yeah. You know, you <laughs> yeah. take what you can get on top of The wind has advantage yeah. and disadvantage. Yeah. John Krakauer gets to camp for 5 or 6 p.m. And remember, they're going to leave at 11 p.m. Oh, yeah. So they only to have To make a their summit assault. Yeah. yeah. So th- this last push is like kind of one 
trip. Like you kind of have to do it. Like they don't want to spend a lot of time at camp four. So he gets there to camp four and he tries to sleep. He's got one tent buddy. They crawl into their tent and they try to sleep for a few hours, but it's super windy. The nylons flapping around. They barely get any rest. This wind really blows, man. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) So anyway, and then it's like 11 PM and they're making their push. And, I was saying, I mentioned earlier that they had kind of agreed to all go at different times, but when they get into Camp 4, it's like a full-on gale. It's like 90, 80 mile an hour winds, and Jeez. they're like, holy shit. They're all huddled up in their in their tents, and they're not sure if they're going to be able to make the push that night or not. Yeah. They might have to turn around and go back and try it in a couple of days. So they're huddled up in the camps. It's super windy. They're not sure if they're going to be able to make it to the peak. There was one group that tried the peak that day like the day prior Mm -hmm. they could see them trying to summit the top while they were hiking up from camp three to camp four and they didn't make it they had to turn around it was too snowy and too windy yeah they came back down at the same time that our guys are getting there to camp four um so they're huddled up in the tents they're trying to sleep and they're also just really anxious about the wind dying down because they really want to make their summit attempt that next day theoretically but they're not sure so around 7 8 p.m the wind dies down and Rob Hall tells everybody in his crew, like, okay, we've got our window. Like, we're going to go tonight. It looks, I think it's going to be good. Yeah. So he's like, get some rest, get ready, and we'll. Oh, he wants to make it there on the 10th. Yeah. They're, they're trying to get that up there the next day, which will be the 10th. They leave yeah. at 11 p.m. on May 9th to get to the summit by 1 p.m. on mm-hmm. May 10th. They, although they had talked about it a lot on the way up, he didn't give a very, a very strict or specific turnaround time. Mm-hmm. But the understanding that John Krakauer and some of the other climbers had was that 2 p.m. was the hard, you go back down time period. So they had 15 hours to make it up to the top. 11 o'clock comes around. They all start leaving for the top. Now, it was super windy the day before. And one group, the Montenegrins, already couldn't make it to the top. So when the wind dies down, even though they kind of agreed upon going at different days before, the Mountain Madness team and the South African team and the Taiwanese team all decide this is the only chance we're going to get. So when they leave the night of May 9th to go up the mountain, there are 33 people trying to get up the mountain yep. all at the same time. So 33 people leave Camp 4 around the same time, you know, can start working their way up the mountain. And almost immediately, it's kind of like a traffic jam. And Rob Hall was very specific with his group that he wanted them all to stay together and not get, too, not get more than like 100 meters apart yeah. until they reached the South Summit, which is just another promontory yeah. on the way up. Once they were all together at the South Summit, then he was going to let them go on their own. And he was kind of specifically talking to John Krakauer, who's one of the more experienced mountaineers on the mountain. But basically, you know, he's a client still. And one of the things that John Krakauer talks about, one of his critiques, is that the the guide-client relationship, in order to make it work, the guides really enforce, like, our word is law. Yeah. You have to listen to us. You have to do whatever we say. We're in charge. Our judgment is is the yeah. rules, right? Which isn't a typical client-consultant relationship. It's like yeah. it's also not the typical relationship between team members on a mountaineering group, yeah. right? Like if you're if you're with other teammates and you're like, okay, we're going to summit this mountain together. You're all looking out for each other. Mm-hmm. You are all bear a degree of the responsibility. Yeah. You, you're all trying to protect your teammates. You're roped together most of the time. So yeah. if somebody falls, you you can hold them up. But this isn't the case with this type of relationship. The guides are, their word is law, and the clients, even if they're really experienced climbers, mm-hmm. are supposed to listen and defer to the guides. Yeah. So as they're going up, 
he has to slow down because he's a skilled mountaineer. Every, not everybody else in his group is as fast as he is. Yeah. So he like he gets a certain ways up with one of the Sherpas on Dorji, and then they have to sit and wait for like 45 minutes. Oh, yeah? Yeah, for, for the, the rest, rest of the group, group to catch yeah. up. And then they go ahead again, and they're climbing, and they're climbing, and then they have to sit and wait again for like 90 minutes. Yeah. So he's getting pretty frustrated because... He wants to summit Everest. He knows there's a hard turnaround time, and the rest of his group is like yeah. slowing him up. He's only hard. able to move as quickly as the slowest person. Yeah, really. I mean, so he's getting a little frustrated. They get to a certain point up the mountain, and there's no more fixed ropes. So what a fixed rope is is you know like a rope that's actually been pounded into the ice or into the stone. Yeah, and it's there pretty it's much anchored permanently. and secured. Yeah, yeah. And every season, the first group up the mountain has to put in fixed ropes. Yeah, right. Sometimes now, they could probably use some from last year, but like, you know, probably don't want to trust them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Now the Montenegrin group, the one that had tried to summon it the day before. Yeah. Was a pretty inexperienced group. Okay. And they used all of their rope on the first like 1600 feet uh-huh. of elevation gain, which yeah. is actually the easiest, least treacherous section yeah, of that whole summit push from don't the need South the rope as much. They didn't really need to do it there. And then they didn't put any ropes from that point forward. So John Krakauer and another one of the Sherpas get to that point where there are no more fixed ropes. Mm-hmm. They're waiting for the rest of the group. Some other people catch up. Ang Dorji and one of the other Sherpas are sitting there. They're all sitting there for like an hour. And then one of the other guides is like, hey, wait a second. Aren't you guys going to go put out some fixed ropes so we can keep going? Like talking to the two Sherpas. Yeah. And they're like, no. <laughs> because the one Sherpa, Ang Dorji. So Ang Dorji, who was the um, lead Sherpa on the Adventure Consultants team, the understanding was that he and the lead Sherpa from the Mountain Madness team were going to work together and put out the um, fixed ropes for the rest of the crew. Some new ones. Yeah. yeah. However, when they got to the, the section where they were supposed to do that, Lopsang, who was the lead Sherpa from the Mountain Madness team, uh-huh. wasn't there. So he was he was way behind, way more behind than he normally would be. Yeah. Both of these guys were going up without supplement, supplemental oxygen because they're badasses. Yeah. Lopsang had also summoned Everest before without oxygen, yeah. right? But he had spent the climb from Camp 3 to Camp 4 carrying additional equipment for this woman, Sandy Pittman, including a satellite phone because hmm. she wanted to, like, call in some articles uh, just like, from the yeah, summit. Just this was a 30-pound oh, satellite yeah. 1996 phone. 1996 model uh, yes. satellite phone. Yeah, so Lopsang had carried this 30-pound phone up the day before, and then instead of being where he was supposed to be at the front of the pack with Ang Dorji to put the new ropes, mm-hmm. he was at the back of the pack, roped to Sandy Pittman, basically dragging her up the mountain. Yeah. And so John Krakauer, in reading this book, he kind of makes the assumption, and he had a conversation with um, Lopsang later. What he says that Lopsang said was that it was really important to Scott Fisher, who was the leader of the Mountain Madness team, mm-hmm. that all of his clients make it to the top, but especially Sandy Pittman. Because she was the influencer. She, she was, was the, the influencer. She was going to be the promotion or like the... Yeah, the promoter. She was getting the word out whole for thing. Yeah. yeah. Lopsang and Scott Fisher went way back, and he and Lopsang was fiercely loyal and a huge fan of Scott Fisher, right? Mm-hmm. So what John Krakauer kind of makes the assumption is that Lopsang made the decision on the push from Camp 4 to the summit to rope himself to her and get her up the mountain at all costs. He... Assumes that he made the the decision that if he could pull her up there, then they could make they could get there in time. Yeah. But if he didn't, she wouldn't. So anyway, he he was back there pulling her instead of at the front to set the ropes. So the whole group is sitting there waiting for like an hour and a half 
for somebody to put these ropes out before they kind of come to the conclusion, oh, we need to do this. And then um, two of the guides from um, Mountain Madness and one of the guides from Adventure Consultants end up going and putting the ropes Mm -hmm. out there so they can all continue. So there's just like, there's already been a delay just because there's too many people going up at a time. Mm -hmm. Then there's another delay here. And then as they keep going up the mountain, they get to what's called the Hillary Step, which is this 40 foot like vertical promontory. Yeah. On the way up the mountain, that pretty hardcore. It's like actual rock climbing, yeah. you know, like you actually oh, have to yeah. like climb up vertical, it. Yeah. <laughs> vertical, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So John Krakauer reaches the Hillary Step uh, at the same time as one of the guides, a couple of the guides from the Mountain Madness team, uh, Anatoly Bukarev and Neil Bidelman. So Anatoly Bukarev sets the fixed lines on the Hillary Step, which is that forty foot vertical section, and then uh, John Krakauer is able to climb up. So he climbs to the top of the Hillary Step. And he reaches, he's walking, he's walking, and he finally gets to a point where he can't go up anymore, and he realizes he's at the summit. At 107, he made it to the summit of Mount Everest. Oh, nice. Yeah. So pretty much... Uh, so that's funny, he didn't even, like notice that he was up there, he's kind of like, all right, I need to keep going up, and then he's like, there is no up from here, yeah. it's the top. Yeah, and there's like some prayer flags up there, there's yeah. nothing like, like I was I mentioned before, the, the hard turnaround time is 2 o'clock, uh-huh. because that's how much time you need to get back before it gets dark. Mm-hmm. From two to, I guess it only takes like four hours to get back (laughs) (laughs) because it gets dark pretty early. Yeah. I think it gets dark at like probably six o'clock. But anyway, um, you need to turn around at two o'clock or you're not going to make it back to camp four before it gets dark. Yeah. So that Hillary step you said, it's, that's like the last 40 feet to the summit or it's, well, it's not, yeah, it's 40 feet up and then the rest there's, there are not any big significant climbs after that point. So it's it's pretty pretty close to the summit. It's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty close. The Hillary Step is at 28,740 feet, so you only need to go another 300 feet, feet yeah. yeah, up. John Cracker makes it to the top. He's struggling, by the way. Yeah. He's already used two bottles of oxygen. Mm-hmm. He's got one left. So, I don't remember if you said or not, is this the first time, his is the first time he's ever been to the Yeah, to the he's never been up Mount Everest okay. at all. And he's done some pretty big peaks, but nothing like this. Yeah. Yeah, nothing like Everest. Mm-hmm. I think he did, um, what is that big mountain in, in Alaska? Denali. Denali. I think he did Denali previously, but not, which is pretty tall, but not, not yeah. on Everest. I think it's like 21,000 or 20. Yeah, it's the tallest in the United States. Look it up. Oh, yeah, only 20,300. Yeah, so it's considerably less. I mean, 9,000 <laughs> yeah. feet less than Mount Everest. And anyway, so, but he was one of the stronger climbers in the group. He reached the top first, I mean, mm-hmm. with Anatoly Bukarev, who was one of the guides from uh, the Mountain Madness team. And at this point, you know, he's pretty excited to get to the top and he takes a couple pictures, but he he's also pretty beat to shit. And, he, mm-hmm. and see, he's only up there for a few minutes and starts heading back down. One of the things he notes, though, in the book, he throws some shade on Anatoly Bukarev, who was one of the guides with Mountain Madness team, uh-huh. because Anatoly Bukarev was climbing without supplemental oxygen. Yeah. And at the, by the time he gets to the top, not only did he not have supplemental oxygen, he didn't even bring a backpack. Huh. He had ditched his backpack because yeah. he decided that since he was climbing without oxygen, he wanted to be as low weight as possible. Yeah. Typically on a journey like this, the guides would have like rescue equipment, additional rope. First aid kit at the first aid place. kit, <laughs> yeah. additional oxygen for some of the other members. Yeah. If they run out, like they're carrying some extra stuff to help yeah. out the team. So Krakauer is like, he notes that he's like, yeah, you, you're a guide. You're supposed to be ready to help other people out. And as it will, as you'll see in a few minutes, 
people needed some freaking help, yeah. right? And he didn't bring anything with him. I bet there's a huge, almost elitism thing. Like, if somebody's able to do it without oxygen. The prestige. Yeah, exactly. And even if they, like, kind of get to the point where they kind of need it, they'll be like, no, 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 I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. I can go. Yeah. <laughs> Which and seems the- just fucking crazy. But then once they get to the point where they're, when somebody's like, oh, I'm using some oxygen, they'll be like, yeah, I don't mind using two bottles. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, so, John Cracker makes it to the top at 107. Mm-hmm. Now, when the rest of the group kind of gets to the Hillary step, there's a pretty big traffic jam because there's just one rope. Oh, up, yeah, yeah. Right? And there's 33 climbers to get up there. And it probably, it's 40 feet, so it probably takes them. Takes a minute. Yeah. yeah. And you got your backpack and you're on all your yeah. snow gear and shit. Now, at this point, some of the guys from the Adventure Consultants team decided to turn back at the Hillary step because mm-hmm. they were worried that. Um, well, also, it's like once uh, the first group got to the top, it was like less than an hour before their turnaround time. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Hutchins. So on. I didn't go through the whole list, but uh, Stuart Hutchinson, Lou Kashiski, and uh, John Tasky, three of the guys on the Adventure Consultants team, turned back at the Hillary Step. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm mentioning this and never mentioned these guys before is it's just important to know at this point. Like Rob Hall, his team, it's got ten guys on it. Three of them have already turned back. Yeah. One of them further down, Beck Weathers. We'll talk about him in a little bit. He's important in the story. He had to stop already as well. Yeah. And he's probably, they don't know for sure if he's going to turn back or not. He was having some eye vision problems. He had had surgery on his eye for whatever reason when he got to the high enough altitude, it was fucking up that surgery. So he couldn't see. So he stopped on the balcony, the spot where they had to put out the extra ropes. (laughs) He stopped there. Now three more guys turned back. So he's already lost four of his clients haven't made it to the top. This is a little bit important to Rob Hall's psychology for the decisions he's about to make because those four guys had already turned back and he's trying to get this guy, Doug Hansen. Yeah, Doug Hansen to the top. Doug Hansen is a client. He's uh, from the U.S. He had tried to summit Everest the year before mm-hmm. with Rob Hall's group. Yeah. And he had turned around, I think, at the Hillary Step. Yeah, like so he's 300 like, feet below. So he's like, this is my year, man. Well, Doug Hansen actually, he was like, you know what? I'm never going to do it. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Rob Hall called him and was like, no, I can get you up there. Like, we can do this. Yeah. He convinced him to come back. Oh. But he's struggling. Yeah. He's at the very back of the pack. Mm-hmm. And Rob Hall is with him, but they're way, 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 way behind schedule. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And we'll get into that in a second. But so Rob Hall is trying to get Doug Hansen up there. He's already lost four of his team has not made it to the summit. So there's this mounting pressure especially since they have a writer and like an Instagram influencer with them on the summit this time yeah. to get all his people to the top. Meanwhile, Scott Fisher's group, Anatoly Bukarev, the guy that made it up there at the same time as John Krakauer, the one that doesn't have the oxygen. He's one of the guides for the mountain madness group. So he stays up there for a while. And while he's up there, Neil Beidelman, who's another one of the guides for mountain madness makes it to the top. Yasko Namba, who's one of the, clients for adventure consultants makes it to the top martin adams and clev shonik also make it to the top those are two guys on the mountain madness team yeah and that's by 230 so that group they all kind of make it there about the same time pretty much the mountain madness team they all make it to the top okay many of them around two o'clock a couple of the adventure consultants team make it to the top but just a couple yeah at this point at where we are right now which is when Bukarev turns around, who he's the guide with Mountain Madness, he turn he leaves the summit at two thirty after being on the summit for an hour and a half, uh, helping people complete the last leg of it, pretty much. So he turns around. The story that I read, which is into thin air, is told from the point of view of John Krakauer. So he's going back down, 
Okay, so he's watching these people. He's watching these people pass him on the way back up. Because he's basically only out there for 15 minutes. He's worried he's going to run out of oxygen. So he's heading back down. As he's going back down, he um, encounters one of the other guides who's like having trouble getting oxygen. And he's like, ah, what's going on here? And John helps him like de-ice the regulator so he can get air flowing again. And then he asks the guy like, hey, can you... um, can you turn my regulator off? I want to save my oxygen for later. The guide, instead of turning it off, turns it up all the oh, way. Fucker. So he's going back down and he gets to the Hillary step and he has to stop and wait because everybody's coming up yes. the 40 foot oh. thing and his oxygen's up all the way. While <laughs> Does he's, he know, know this yet or is he just... Yeah. He doesn't know. And while he's sitting and waiting, his oxygen cuts out completely yeah. because he runs out. So he no longer has any supplemental oxygen. Yeah. So he starts to lose it a little bit. Like his his recollection, and that's the narrator for this book. Yeah. It starts to go a little bit weird <laughs> really? after this point. I mean, you know, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. He's kind of freaking out because he's out of oxygen at this point. He really wants to get down while all these people come up. Then once they go by, he goes down the Hillary Step and keeps going. At the South Summit, which is like a little ways down from the Hillary Step, there was a uh, cache of oxygen oh. bottles, so he knew he just had to get over there. He gets over to it, and Andy Harris, who is one of the guides for Rob Hall's team, is there look like fucking around with all the bottles. And he's like, hey, how's it going? And he's like, ah, oh, there's no oxygen here. These are all empty. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the cache of, like, oxygen bottles. And he's like, no, they're all empty. And John Krakauer picks one up and, like, screws it onto his regulator, and it's full. And he's huh. like, no, dude, they're not empty. They're full. And Andy Harris is like, no, they're all empty. They're all completely empty. And they're like, he's, they're arguing about it. Yeah. And he's like, okay, whatever, man. And just like keeps going. Andy Harris was one of the guides for John Krakauer. Mm-hmm. So he was looking at him like he's in charge. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Looking back on that moment. He realized the guy's he realized crazy because he didn't have any He air. didn't have enough air. Probably his regulator was iced up. So when he screwed the bottle onto his regulator, it said zero. But he yeah. just had to like de-ice his regulator. But if that were the case, he probably hadn't been getting oxygen for a while. So he was acting irrationally and obviously needed help because he was already kind of losing it. Yeah. And John Cracker was just like, peace. So this is what you mentioned earlier. How <laughs> this he, is yeah. what I mentioned earlier, yeah. <clears throat> if it was more had, of a casual, uh, or not well, casual, had, but... Had there more been more an equal dynamic between yeah. the different people attempting this climb on the mountain, Yeah. this is what John Cracker says in his words, like, he would have been like, okay, are you all right? Like, probably checked in, yeah, helped like, him de-ice the regulator, regulator, let him screwed it on there, made sure he was okay, yeah. and then continued. Like, taking some responsibility yeah. over this other person. Yeah. But they, they had had hammered into them at this point that the guides were in charge. They were the responsible parties. They know what they're talking about. They know what they're talking about. They know how right? to work a damn regulator. Yeah. So John Krakauer continues down the mountain. On the way down, he gets to the balcony. He sees Beck Weathers standing there shivering. He's like, what are you doing? He was the guy that that was the like, vision surgery yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's actually like a Texan. He's mm-hmm. like a rich Texan dude. Uh, I think a surgeon. He had had eye surgery and he can't see at this point at this altitude. And so John Cracker's like, "What are you doing? Like, why are you waiting here in the snow? Like, go down. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. go." <laughs> yeah. So he had told Rob that he was having these vision issues and that he couldn't see and he wouldn't be able to make it further. So Rob Hall's like, "Sorry, dude. You gotta. I'll send you back down with one of the Sherpas." Back Weathers said to Rob Hall. You know, once the sun comes up a little bit, I think I might be able to see more. Let me wait here. Let me let me give it a half hour. Uh, if I can see better in a half hour, I'll follow you guys up. And then Rob Hall says to him, okay, if you can't see better in a half hour, stay right here. I'm going to come back down. I'll get you on the way back down. Yeah. Keeping and keeping his word, he had stayed right there <laughs> yeah. waiting, freezing <laughs> yeah. in the cold. So anyway, John gets there and he's like, well, it's already too late. Like, come down with me. It's already after two o'clock at this, like it's two or three o'clock. Like, come down with me. You can come down with me if you want. 
And he's like, no, I, I told Rob Hall I was going to wait here for him, so I'm going to wait here for him. Yeah. And he's like, okay, peace, and keeps going, yeah. right? And so John Cracker continues down the mountain. <laughs> As he's going down the mountain, he's seeing the these cloud formations start appearing in the valley. Oh, this is where shit gets weird. <sighs> yeah. Oh, yeah, he haven't mentioned yet. Is it cold up there? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cold. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Let me tell you how cold it is. Let's just look at the weather right now. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, it's it's January, so it's a different part of the year. But <laughs> <laughs> right now, on top of Mount Everest, it's a balmy negative twenty nine degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. Nice. That's negative seventeen Celsius for our Canadian listener. Anyway, it is cold. It's very cold. Yeah, it's freezing cold. I don't know how cold exactly, but it's it's freaking cold. But anyway, so he sees these clouds forming down in the valley. Up until then. Remember, there was some really strong wind the night before, yeah. but it's been pretty clear and kind of perfect day for the ascent, and they're stoked on it yeah. up until this point. As he's coming down, he starts to see these clouds forming in the valley. He doesn't really think anything of it, but they're cumulonimbus. They're thunderclouds. Yeah. He doesn't realize it at the time, but they were thunderclouds. Yeah. And this was the beginnings of a blizzard that was about to blow in. Yeah. Around 3 o'clock, it starts snowing. He's still making his way down the mountain. And visibility drops significantly. Yeah. He t- he tells about getting to a certain point on the way down where he knew that if he went off the route to the left or to the right, he would fall and die. And he could only see like a few feet in front of him. Yeah. But he was a pretty experienced mountaineer. So on the way up, he had forced himself to memorize the landmarks. Here's this rock here. Turn left at this. Follow the curve of the mountain here. And he was thanking himself. Like he knew at this point exactly where to go. So he was able to follow his path down. Oh, he's by himself, right? He's by himself at this point. And it started to snow. So there's no tracks from the previous group. Yeah. What the other people that'll follow him actually have that he doesn't is his tracks, (laughs) which is (laughs) nice. But it's cool, yeah. Yeah. So he gets down. As he's getting down, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. The snow is getting heavier, the visibility is getting worse, and the sun is going down. Yeah. Uh, or the, yeah, they're losing some light, mostly because of the snowstorm. He gets to a certain point, kind of right before the south call, so like where Camp 4 is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty close, right? There's just this like ice, they're kind of this steep ice ledge down, and then there's the south, the flat area. He gets there and he's waiting, hoping that there'll be kind of a break in the snow. So he's sitting there waiting at the top of this like ice slope waiting for there to be a little bit of a break in the storm to take this kind of more technical terrain while he's waiting there this guy comes up to him who he thinks is andy harris the guide from before Mm -hmm. guy comes up to him and says like which way is the tents and he like points he's like yeah but there's a really steep part of ice right here you're gonna want to wait and the guy just like belly flops and slides Uh, down the hill (laughs) like a penguin yeah uh, he so, tri- well he's he trips oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't like straight up he's like all right see you woo yeah but he trips and falls and slides down this thing and then just starts walking straight toward the tents yeah and then john cracker was like well fuck i guess i can go down this <laughs> <laughs> like it's like a 200 foot section yeah so then he does uh, what he calls you know 15 minutes of cramp on work gets down he's able to follow this guy and walk down to the tents and he uh, he gets to his tent and he falls asleep while he he's doing that, like as he's getting there, the blizzard is just getting worse and worse. And this is like four o'clock. Yeah. So back up on the mountain, you remember the the only the latest time to safely turn around is two o'clock. Uh-huh. And Bukarev, who's uh, the guide from Mountain Madness, he turns he's leaves the summit at two thirty, and not everybody has made it at this point. Mm-hmm. So some of the Sherpas are waiting at the summit. At three o'clock, they begin to go down. Ong Dorji, who's the lead Sherpa from the uh, Adventure Consultants team, he runs into Doug Hansen above the Hillary Step, 
uh, and tells him he's got to turn around because it's already after three o'clock. And he's so like, no, the summit's right there. Huh? Exactly. He ordered him to descend and Hanson did not respond verbally, but shook his head and pointed upward yeah. like I'm going to the summit. Now, at this point, Rob Hall was on the summit as well, but he was waiting for Doug Hanson because that was the guy that he had encouraged oh, to come yeah, back yeah. this season. Right. Who had almost made it before. Is he the last one of that group? He's the last yeah. one of that group to make it to the top. Nice. So Rob Hall is waiting for Doug Hansen to get there. Two o'clock comes around. Three o'clock comes around. He's still not there. And he finally gets there around like 3.30. Nice. Hall sent the rest of the Sherpas down to assist other clients. Also asked them to stash some oxygen on the way down for himself and Doug. Because mm-hmm. he knew the longer you're up there, the more oxygen you're using. So yeah. like your plan is to turn around at 2 and be back at the camps by 5. If you're up there and it's 3.45 you know you're going to run out of oxygen. So he says, like, yeah. go down and take the other, take care of the rest of the people. Leave some oxygen for us on the way down. I'll bring Doug down. So, man, it gets really fucked up. <laughs> but anyway, so, that, but what I wanted to point out is just that, like, 3 o'clock, 3.30, they're still up there. They were mm-hmm. supposed to turn around, like, 2 at the latest, right? Yeah. So they're already an hour and a half, and this blizzard has started. It starts snowing at 3 o'clock. Now, for the other team, the Mountain Madness people... All of them made it to the top except for Scott Fisher, who is the leader of Mountain Madness. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make it till the summit until 345. What the fuck, man? He was sick. One of the things that happened to him is on the way coming up from Camp 3 to Camp 4, somebody got hurt and he went back down to help him out mm-hmm. and then went back up. So he didn't get to Camp 4 until like 9 o'clock at night and they were leaving at like 11. He didn't leave until 1 a.m. Oh, yeah. So he like took a couple extra hours and he was having like diarrhea. Like he was sick. So he doesn't make it till the top until 3.45 and it's already snowing and it's it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now everybody's just trying to get down. Bukarev, the guy that went up there without oxygen, he makes it back down to the tents at 5 o'clock before any of the clients from his team. Yeah. Right. John Krakauer was like, kind of gives him a lot of shit about that like if you're the guide why did you run back to the tents before <laughs> but Bukarev, who also wrote a book which i haven't read but i read some excerpts of his argument was look there's there were five other guides on the mountain he knew there was going to be trouble with the snow coming in he decided i'm going to get all the way back down get hydrated get a little oxygen mm. so i can go back up to his credit he makes three solo rescue attempts that night yeah for people that are stuck up there on the mountain and he saves some lives. You know, even though John Cracker was like, why the fuck did you do that? He's like, this is why. Yeah. Here are the people I saved. <laughs> yeah, so Krakauer was kind of assuming he could have saved more people yeah, without hydrating, which, I don't know, maybe, I mean, because he would have saved a lot of time, but. Who knows? Anything could have happened. Maybe he would have gone up there and killed three people. He, he's Russian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Excellent point. Yeah. So one of the guides for the Mountain Madness team, Neil Beidelman, was coming down with his clients, Clev Schoenig, Fox Madsen, and this woman we talked about earlier, Sandy Pittman. Mike Groom, who's one of the um, one of the guides from the Adventure Consultants team, is with Beck Weathers, the guy that couldn't see, and Yasko Namba. And those two groups kind of glom together. So there's <clears throat> one of the guides from the Mountain Madness team with a few of his clients, and one of the guides from... Adventure Consultants team with a few of his clients kind of end up all bunched together. And so they get down off the mountain onto the South Call at the same time, the football field area where all the tents are. Yeah, yeah. However, at this point, the blizzard is so strong and there are 100 mile an hour winds <laughs> coming up at them. They can't see the tents. Oh. So they're down off of like the steep part and they're on to the super windy part where the tents are. Yeah. 
but it's a full whiteout blizzard. They know that if they wander too far to the east or the west, <laughs> yeah. they're going to fall 7,000 feet oh, well, to their deaths. That's not much. They're on the south call. They're only 600 feet away from the tents. They can't find them. They can't find them. They wander around for a little bit and then until they get to the one of the cliff edges, and then they're like, oh, fuck, we can't do this. So Bidelman is like, we got to just like hole up and wait for a break in the blizzard to... Mm-hmm keep going otherwise we're going to wander to our deaths so they end up spending like the whole night that night just out in the open in yeah. 100 mile an hour winds with a negative 100 degree wind chill jeez <laughs> that's fucked yeah part way through the night Bidelman realizes like there's a little bit of a break in the blizzard the wind is still kicking up a lot of snow where they are but he can see stars so huh. he knows that like it's not a full on it's not snowing yeah right and when he can see the stars, he realizes he can see the shape of the mountain, Mount Everest, uh-huh. the summit. And so he's like, oh, okay, that way is our tents, right? Yeah. Away from the... Yeah. yeah. But the wind is still blowing completely the wrong way, like from the tents straight at them, right up the mountain. He realizes there's a little break in the weather. He's like, okay, we got to go. We got to move now. But he can't get the other people up. They've been laying there. They're fucking exhausted. <laughs> They've been laying there for hours, right? And so he can't get the rest of them up. So he ta- he asks the other uh, guide, Mike Groom, to stay there. He says he's going to go back and get help, get a rescue party from the tents yeah. to go save them. So he goes back to the tents, wakes some people up. Not John Cracker. John Cracker is just sleeping in his tent at this point. Nice. But Bukarev is part of the rescue party that goes back for these people. Uh-huh. They go back to get them. But I think it's just Bukarev and like one other guy. They try to save everybody, but like they can... No one can get up. No one can move on their own. Oh, really? None of the people, none of the clients. Because Mike Groom is a guide and Bukarev is a guide. The clients that were waiting there, which include Beck Weathers and Yasko Namba from the Adventure Consultants team, mm-hmm. can't get up. They save Pittman and Fox, they, but they have to like carry them back <laughs> to the tents or like they have to have their arm around them and yeah, basically yeah. drag them back. So they get them and they take them back to the tents. And then when they go back for Yasko Namba and Beck Weathers... Mike Groom tells the story, like, while they're waiting for Bidelman to come back with help, which is Bukarev, at one point, Beck Weathers, who's, like, the um, Texan, he just, like, stands up, and he says, I got it all figured out. And he just, like, he stands up in the crazy wind, spreads out his arms, and just gets blown backwards out of sight. Huh. Like, into the snow, like, gone. Yeah. And at this point, Bidelman's like, okay, he's fucking gone. He's dead. <laughs> what the <laughs> like, fuck? Well, Wonder what he had figured out. Hypoxia makes you totally crazy. Yeah, exactly. Hypoxia is not having enough oxygen. Yeah, right? and that's what the guy was doing earlier probably with, when he was fucking around with the uh, Yeah, he definitely had hypoxia. Bottles. Like, it makes you go crazy. It's super dangerous to mountaineering stuff because yeah. you lose your judgment and all your stuff. When they go back for Yasko Namba, the Japanese woman, and for Beck Weathers, the next day, like when in the next morning, when they could get back, <laughs> yeah. they find Yasko Namba and she's like got three inches of ice over her face. She's oh, frozen. Yeah. Solid. Right? She's dead. And they find uh, Beck Weathers, and he's like, both his hand he lost his mittens, and he's just like laying there, his hands are completely frozen solid, his face has ice all over it. They, they're dead. They're frozen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're frozen. And so they turn around. Death count is two at this moment. That's right. Unless we can confirm the Texan one of these days. Yeah, well that was the Texan. Beck Weathers was a Texan. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I think Doug Hansen's also Texan. So they did find him. Or he's the one that blew away. Oh, he, but he, they did he made it back. Him. They didn't make it back. Okay. They went back to look for him, <laughs> and they found him okay, yeah. laying in the having snow. Having been blown away. Having been blown away. Just like no six hands. feet away from yeah. where they were. Oh, yeah. 
It wasn't, he didn't get blown away that far. But far enough, they were all huddled together in a tiny little group trying yeah. to stay warm. And this guy just like stood up and fell over there. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, death count is seemingly two. Seemingly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that group had this horrible time where they made it down to the South Call. They're 600 feet away from their tents and they can't find them. And they get stuck out there. They have to spend the night out there. And then uh, only some of them make it back, right? That's what happens to that group. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Rob Hall who radios in from the summit that Doug Hansen made it and like they radios back to like base camp and back to his wife yeah. saying like we made it we're going to turn around now. Doug Hansen's the one who's like who had been there the year before. Yeah, and who was, almost made it the year yeah. before, the one that Rob Hall was like really he's adamant a real, about. He's a real trooper. Yeah, getting him to the top. Yeah. So they turn around but it's like the blizzard is already going on. There's a series of radio exchanges like Rob Hall is saying, "Okay, we're going to we're trying to come back down. Is there oxygen at the South Summit?" And then Andy Harris, the guy that was fucking around with the oxygen bottles, says, like, no, there's no oxygen there. <laughs> and then, like, one of the other guys is like, yeah, there is. And then he hears, like, no, there's not. I checked them all. There's no oxygen there. God damn it. And the other guy's like, yes, there is. And Rob Hall's like, okay, I don't know what we're going to do if there's no oxygen there. He was going to try and get somebody to bring him up some oxygen to Doug because they were both out. Yeah. Anyway, so there's, like, it's all laid out really nicely in the book. But there's this series of, like, radio calls from Rob Hall where he's like, okay, I'm trying to get Doug down. But it's like nighttime now. The sun is set. Blizzard's in full force. He can't get Doug down the Hillary step. Oh. So they end up stuck at the top of the Hillary step for who, nobody really knows how many hours that night. The next morning, he's able to radio in. He's made it to the South Summit, but Doug is gone. And Doug. and he's saying, where's, where's Andy? Andy was with me last night, Andy Harris. Yeah. He's saying, Andy Harris was with me last night. Where is he? John Krakauer had sworn that the guy that went past him and, and slid down the helm yeah. was Andy Harris. But when he got back to the tents, or the next morning, they were like, oh, where's Andy Harris? And Cracker was like, oh, I saw him walking to the tents last night. And they're like, well, he's not here. So Cracker goes out and kind of follow, follows his steps, and he sees steps leading off the side uh-huh. of the call. And he goes back, and he's like, Andy Harris walked off the side of the south call yeah. and died, fell down the Lotsey face and died. So he tells that to the, everybody at the tents. So when Rob Hall's saying, like, where's Andy Harris? They're like, uh, we don't know. He wasn't up there with you. But we find out later, Krakauer made a terrible mistake. <laughs> the guy that he saw was not Andy Harris. Andy Harris stayed behind, went back to save Rob and Doug, yeah. and died that night. So he ends up, this in the book, after these events, he ends up interviewing a lot of the people that were out there with him. Yeah. And one of the guys he's interviewing is like, yeah, I was coming down the mountain. I saw this guy sitting here at the stop of the, at the top of the ice thing. So I rolled and down I was like, like a penguin. Yeah. He's like, where are the tents? And the guy pointed to me. So I freaking went down there, slid half the way down on my ass, but I made it. <laughs> and then he's like, wait, that was you? And he's like, wait, that was you? Yeah. And they're like, oh shit. And at that point, months after the whole thing, yeah. he realizes Andy Harris was up there at the top trying yeah. to get the client and Rob Hall down. But and in like, the moment, he told, tells everybody, oh, Andy Harris is dead. Yeah. It's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. And they tell his wife and all this stuff that he, oh, he just wandered off the side and oh. died. Oh, fuck. And actually, he was up there trying to be a freaking hero. It makes you question a lot of the shit in this book. But- yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when you read a book, you're like, oh, this is the narrator. They know what happened. Yeah, and then and- the narrator's telling you what they got wrong, and you're like, wait a sec. Rob Hall. He's the leader of Avenger Consultants. He's a seasoned veteran, but he's stuck up there on the mountain uh, overnight in a blizzard. At this point, Doug Hansen is gone, who was the guy he was trying to get down. And Andy Harris, who's a fellow guide 
uh, on Rob Hall's team, he's also gone. So it's just Rob Hall up there on the mountain. There's another mountaineer who's actually on the next mountain over. And he is desperately trying to get Rob Hall to leave Doug Hansen and come down. He's like, leave him. Leave him. you got to go. He's like, no, i got to see if I can get him down this thing. i got to see if I can get him down this. Yeah. We're going to make it. I don't want to leave him up here. And the other guy's like, you got to go, man. You're not going to – like, you can't stay out there. Cause he's looking at Mount Everest. He sees the storm coming, in, and he's a really experienced mountaineer. Are they just chatting over the over the radio? Yeah. Okay. This guy's name is Bashir's, and he was actually with, with a whole other team filming a, an IMAX movie huh. about Mount Everest, and they're on this other mountain. To this guy's credit, as soon as he hears that there's these eight – mountaineers eight climbers stranded on the summit in this storm abandons the whole imax expedition switches gears they him and his crew all start going up mount everest they radio up to john krakauer and the guys that have made it to camp four say hey we have a stash of 50 oxygen bottles over here at these tents go use them go take them up to whoever you can go use them for the people that are in the tents and super beat up they abandon their five million dollar project just to help other people out on the mountain yeah which is awesome yeah great but a lot of other <laughs> expeditions don't do that yeah. in the history of Mount Everest and <laughs> yeah, I bet. even in this season. Like mm-hmm. at the same time that these groups are going up the south side, there are a couple groups going up the north side. And uh, there's he details this one story of the, this Japanese group that on their way up encounter like these three stranded climbers and just keep going. <laughs> leave them. Yeah. Like don't give them anything. Don't help them at all. Just yeah. leave them to die basically. Nice. And then. They don't even make it up, and on the way back, they f- see the three guys are like, have taken off their clothes and died in the snow. Because yeah. one of the things from hypothermia too, yeah, exactly, yeah, is that you feel like you get really warm, mm-hmm. and so you'll start to just take off your own clothes, mm-hmm. even when you're freezing. So anyway, Rob Hall, the next morning, they're talking to him, and they're like, "Hey, man, you gotta, you gotta start, uh, you gotta try and get down off the mountain." He's like, "Send." He's like, "I can't feel my hands." Uh, I'm trying to de-ice my regulator right now so I can get some oxygen. So, because once you get oxygen, your circulation improves. Yeah. So he's like, if I can de-ice my regulator, hook up one of these oxygen bottles, because he's already spent a full night up there in a blizzard yeah. on top of Mount Everest, right? Without oxygen. And he's trying to get his regulator de-iced so he can hook up an oxygen bottle, maybe get circulation back to his hands so he can start working his way down. Because he knows if he can't do the knots on the ropes, he's going to fall and he's going to die. And he tells them that. They're like, come on, you got to try, you got to try. And he's like, look, I would if I could. Yeah. I can't move my hands well enough to work the ropes. If I try and go down now, I'm going to die. Yeah. He's like, just send a couple of the boys up with some of that hot tea and a bottle of oxygen <laughs> and I'll be fine. Just send a couple boys up. Bring me some tea. Two of the Sherpas and the lead Sherpa from the uh, Adventure Consultants team and one other guy try to make their way up. They're, it's still a blizzard. Like the storm is still going on. Yeah. And they have to turn around partway up and they can't. They have, and they also had just summited it the day before, so they're not in super great shape. Yeah. So they can't make it up. They turn around, and so they radio Rob Hall, and they're like, hey, we tried to get some guys up there, and they're not going to make it. Like, you're going to have to come down under your own power. Maintains radio contact for a while, but then a little while later, the next day, uh, they're not able to get a response from him. Hmm. And sometime later, another expedition up the mountain finds his body meanwhile scott fisher who was the leader of the mountain madness team mm-hmm. who was sick he made it to the top at 345 which was already way too late the blizzard's coming in he's sick he's barely making it down the mountain and he ends up working his way down just because of the timing with the leader of the taiwanese expedition makalu gao with lopsung who's like the lead sherpa and who's like best buddies with scott fisher right they're trying to make their way down 
and Scott Fisher is just like in worse and worse shape and he just can't make it part way and so he's like sits down with Gao and he tells Lopsung like just go down without me go get some oxygen go get some tea and bring it back up and help us out I'm not gonna I can't keep going so he also attempts to weather the storm up on the summit yeah just like kind of hunker down hunker down yeah yeah with Makalu Gao Lopsung goes down grabs another Sherpa and some tea and some oxygen and tries to make it back up to save Scott Fisher. The, Scott Fisher is much further down than Rob Hall was. He mm. made it a lot further down. But when he gets back to him, he's already dead. They are able to pull Makalu Gao out of there, but his, uh, his feet are completely frostbitten. And uh, it's not good. Bitten by frost. They get Actually, I think they go back up and they they try to bring Scott Fisher down, but he can't walk at that point. So they take Makalu Gao instead. Oh. And then uh, Bukarev ends up going back up to get Fisher mm-hmm. after he already saved the other people on the call. He goes back up again on the mountain in the middle of the blizzard again, but this is the next day. But by the time he gets to him, he's dead. He's taken his whole arm out of one of his sleeves of his jacket. So he started the process of yeah, getting undressed, but then died. didn't even get that far. So Bukarev, who was a longtime friend of Scott Fisher too, like uh, takes a couple of mementos from his body and uh, puts like a... Puts his backpack over his face as like a death veil, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And takes his like pocket knife and takes a couple things from him and then leaves him up there. Later on, Bukarev will give that pocket knife to Scott Fisher's nine-year-old son. Oh, there you go. In Seattle. That's a memento. Back down at um, at Camp 4, uh, our guy John Krakauer finally like wakes up and it's the morning. And the uh, IMAX team has like some of them have made it up to Camp 4 and they're trying to assess like the problem is they're all still over 26,000 feet and they're running out of oxygen. So now they got to figure out how to get down like the rest of the way. And so the IMAX team comes to help out while they're up there. All of a sudden this figure like comes walking like a, like a mummy, like with one arm out like this mm-hmm. across the South call. And they're like, who the hell is that? And it's Beck Weathers, the guy that they had left for dead oh, laying in the call that like that had the Texan, sp- the Texan that yeah. spread his arms out and fallen down. That they had gone back to save, found him, left him. Oh, shit. Somehow, like, he was unconscious for a long time. Yeah. And then his brain just, like, kicked on. <laughs> Crazy. And he woke up. He he survives. So he oh, says no. in his own words, I woke up and I thought I was in my bed. <laughs> and I rolled over on my side and I looked and I saw my hand, like, frozen and blackened. <laughs> and he's like, oh, fuck, I'm in deep shit. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. And realized, and just like had this realization that he had to get out of there on his own. Yeah. He's like, nobody's coming. I got to go. And so he was able to get up and just started walking in the exact right direction in the middle of this blizzard and found Camp 4. So everyone feels fucking terrible because they just left him yeah. the night, like the day before well, yeah. in the snow or earlier that morning they left him and then like eight hours later he comes walking up and they're like, oh, shit. Fuck. <laughs> They put him in two sleeping bags with hot water bottles yeah. in a tent alone. That night, and this is while the correspondence with Rob Hall is still going on and the rescue attempts for the other climbers are still going on. That night, the blizzard's coming in super hard. In John Krakauer's tent, it's like hard enough that the tent's about to blow apart and they have to spend most of the night like holding the tent stakes, yeah. like the the actual like yeah, bars sure of the tent away. to make sure it doesn't blow away or blow down. And so then in the morning, John Krakauer's walking around and he looks over and he sees Beck Weathers' tent, the one they put him in freaking alone, yeah. and it's blown down and flat, <laughs> and he peeks his head in and Beck's like, what the fuck, I've been screaming for help for hours, help <laughs> oh, me, help me. The tent, the 
tent blew down. The sleeping bags were blown off him. Well, what the hell? So he's in, just exposed, laying there in the snow. Yeah. Again. God damn it! <laughs> this poor fucking guy. This poor this guy. Like I don't know why they didn't put him in one of the tents they were gonna be in. Yeah, right. Well, I I mean. They thought he was going to die. Yeah, so they didn't want to They didn't. Bummer. Yeah, they didn't want to have the bummer. They didn't think, he, honestly, they thought he was going to die when they first found him. Like, he still had a heartbeat, but he was, like, basically dead. Yeah. So they first left him in the snow. They thought he was going to die. He wanders, wanders back into the tent on his own fucking two feet, back into the camp. They And they put him in a tent alone because his face is terribly frozen. Yeah. His hands are frozen, and they're like, he's not going to survive. So they leave him, and then they leave him overnight in this tent that blows down. So the sleeping guy's blown off him. He's just laying there in the snow. They just they keep failing this guy over and <laughs> over. It's so terrible. But he's still alive. He's not dead, even though he's just spent another night basically completely uncovered on the top of Mount Everest in 100-mile-an-hour winds. Anyway, so they put him back in some sleeping bags, and they put him in another tent. <laughs> so, so he'll be leaving Mountain Madness a two-star Yelp review. <laughs> yeah. Well, Adventure Consultants. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Although... The both of the owners of both companies are dead now. Oh yeah, brutal. Didn't work out so great for them. Mm. Yasko Namba's dead. Andy Harris is dead. Doug Hansen's dead. Rob Hall's dead. Scott Fisher's dead. Death counts at least five. Yeah, a rare instance. It the death count actually went down. It went down. You it, faked it this out. It was six, and now it's five. <laughs> God damn. Yeah. So now they got they got to get down the mountain, and it's it's not easy, and it's you know. The rest of it is pretty crazy, too. <laughs> like, yeah. they they have to try and get back down the mountain, and they have to do more technical climbing, and they're all, they all feel like they're going to die, basically. They know they got to get out of there. They are afraid they're going to die. Yeah, because they so would if they didn't get out They just start peeling off, like, basically, John Krakauer and three other guys are like, okay, we got to just go. They don't want to leave while Rob Hall's up there, like, in case he can get down, but at, at a certain point, they're like, all right, we got to go. They go, and shortly thereafter, Rob Hall dies anyway. And then they they make it down to like camp three and then camp two and then camp one. And again, crack hour thinks like there's no way Beckweathers is going to make it, but they leave them with some of the like IMAX crew. Yeah. Eight hours later, here comes IMAX crew with Beckweathers. And yeah. he's like, what the fuck? How is this guy still alive? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have any hands. And then like at camp one, they're like doing the doctors at camp one are like doing crazy stuff to try and warm up, like cure the fo- frostbite on Makalu Gao and Beck Weathers, who are both in really bad shape. Yeah. <laughs> the doctors have never seen frostbite as bad as it sees on those two. So they decide to attempt, like, a helicopter rescue of these two people, Beck Weathers and Makalu Gao, because there's mm-hmm. no way those people are going to be able to climb back out through the, the Seracs and the crazy, yeah, uh, yeah. the Kumbu Icefall out of the under their own power and you can't like carry somebody like it's not easy to carry somebody <laughs> yeah when you're like <laughs> when you're climbing a mountain yeah. like so they decided to attempt a helicopter rescue near the u.s embassy actually gets the tibetan government to send a helicopter up for them yeah helicopters can barely operate at that altitude yeah so they have to like strip all the seats and everything out of the helicopter so it can even make it yeah. weight wise and then again it's funny like again John Krakauer is his job to go to find a landing zone. He's looking around and he can't find one. And this other guy comes up and like figures it out right away. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the helicopter tries to fly up there and can't do it. So it like leaves and then comes back again and can't do it. So it leaves. But then the third time it finally lands. But then the pilot says it can only take one guy. And so John Krakauer and two other guys decide to send Makalu Gao out instead of Beck Weathers. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking poor Beck. I know. But luckily the helicopter is able to make a return trip and get them. And then they both get taken to a hospital and treated and survive. Yeah. 
so unfortunately, one of the people on Adventure Consultants uh, team, Yasuko Namba, was like kind of a her. She was a Japanese and she was pretty famous in Japan, and she's dead at this point mm-hmm. on the South Call. She made it all the way down to you know to the South Call and then died there, which sucks. John Krakauer and the rest of the team is once they get off the mountain are immediately bombarded by Japanese reporters are just like all over them trying to get the story out of them. They're like, ah, they're like just totally, I don't know. They're just obviously just incredibly traumatized and like destroyed. Like fucking team. Yeah. They just lost like eight of their friends up on this mountain that they had spent the last like month and a half bonding with and just experienced this horrifying (laughs) catastrophe basically, you know, and, and he does throw a lot of shade though in his book, especially about Bukharev. But also about Rob Hall because he, he kind of puts it on like the whole rivalry between Rob Hall and Scott Fisher led both of them to make a lot of unwise decisions they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Neither of them adhered to the turnaround time. Yeah, and it's like a hard turnaround time, and they're like two hours after it. Two hours, like not even close. Yeah. It wasn't even like, okay, they're almost to the top. Like, okay, we'll push it to 2.30. Yeah. It was like... 3.45 by the time Scott Fisher got to the top and 3.30 yeah. by the time Doug Hansen got to the top. Even if there hadn't been a blizzard, it would have been dark before they got back to the bottom. Yeah. Even if there hadn't been a blizzard, they would have been out of oxygen yeah. before they made it back down. And so would their clients. So there's just a, a series of questionable decisions made by these two guys that are supposed to be in charge and running the show. John Krakauer, for in tone, in kind of putting the blame on these guys in his book, it gets a lot of hate. <laughs> bet, yeah. yeah, like especially from their families. They're like, yeah. you don't you don't know what these guys were thinking. Like you can't, you're putting this assumption on these guys. You already made a huge mistake with Andy Harris. Yeah. He told his whole family that he just wandered off the side and then had to issue a correction months later. Oh, geez. Because he didn't have that conversation with the guy where he figured out that the person he had spoken to yeah. wasn't Andy Harris until... Well after yeah, the incident. Yeah, while he's doing while he's writing his book. While yeah. he's writing his book, like six months later. So then he has to clear it up in his book. Because immediately after he writes a an article about it. Uh-huh. About what happened. And he's saying right there, mm-hmm. dude's dead. And he well, he was dead, but number one, he went down the mountain without any of his clients. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he was one of the guides on Adventure Consultants, yeah. Andy Harris. And according to John Krakauer's initial account, he was down there basically at the same time John Krakauer was. So it would have been way ahead of any of the clients and without any of them. Yeah. So it shows like a lack of responsibility and that he just wandered off the side of the mountain. Okay. Yeah. But instead Andy Harris stayed up there, waited for Rob Hall and Doug, the last two people on the summit. Yeah. And then tried to go save them and bring them oxygen from the South summit and died sometime during the night. We don't know how, but we know that he met Rob Hall because Rob Hall was saying, Andy Harris was with me last night. Can you account for him? Is he back down there? Where did he go? Mm Mm-hmm. We don't know where he went, but we know at the very least he went back up to try and help out his boss and their last client. So he, there's, there's just a big difference in that narrative, like for his family. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's gonna hit different if you know your your husband and and your father died oh, trying yeah, to yeah. save these people Instead than if he just, just like, like yeah. bailed on him and wandered off the side yeah. of the mountain. Just, like yeah, just literally slid off, kind of. Yeah. yeah so John Krakauer, like me, and he acknowledges in his. In the book. Yeah, but not everybody read the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but he acknowledges that, like, that that was one of the hugest mistakes. I mean, he, I think he, as soon as he figures it out, he's, like, throwing up. He's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he also, you know, acknowledges in in the book that he got a, that he got a lot of hate mail for 
for what he wrote in the original article and putting the responsibility on the guides essentially yeah. and on on Bukharev, on Rob Hall and on Scott Fisher, he acknowledges in the book those other opinions. So he, he tries to add That's a little good, parody yeah. to it. He's not totally one-sided, but I think he still has those opinions and uh, to a degree they're valid, but yeah. it's also like you, you can't you don't know what they were thinking. You don't know all their motivations, but it certainly does seem like they broke a lot of their own rules. Yeah. Out of a little bit of an ego thing, it resulted in their deaths and the deaths of several of their clients. So, not ideal. Not ideal. So, the moral of the story, cold shit is fucked. Cold shit is fucked, yeah. <laughs> Freezing sucks. Go live in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's been cold here. It's been a... 40 degrees. Pretty rough 40 degrees, <laughs> which, uh, believe me, we assure you, it is cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a wet cold, so it gets in your bones. Yeah, man. Anyway, yeah, so that's the story, pretty much. Man. I know. It's pretty hardcore. Sad times. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, I would recommend you guys, again, the book, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, first-hand account of this experience. He also weaves in a lot of the history of climbing Mount Everest, which is super interesting. Yeah. And he, like I was saying before, he kind of, um, at the end, he sums it up with this, with this letter that was written to him from an orphan of a Sherpa, basically saying that, in her words, the people of Mount Everest, the Sherpas, were there to protect the mountain, and they've like betrayed the mountain, who's like their mother oh, goddess, yeah, by instead like allowing people to desecrate, uh, yeah, because her slopes and yeah. like that they pay the cost of that with their lives and with the lives of others. Exactly, it's yeah. Like it's not it's not for people. <laughs> it's basically, <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, he doesn't say that outright, but it's so almost what he left me with was like this is a sacred and dangerous place and, and yeah, not everybody should get out there and maybe nobody should go up there. Yeah, I mean, people don't belong up there because it's not hospitable to people. Yeah, and like just because it's there and it's this challenge and there's prestige associated with it, it doesn't mean we should be encouraging it. Yeah. And doesn't mean we should be doing it. So Yeah, and like also not even to mention you're littering the entire time. Oh, like, yeah. you don't want to carry all the shit so you just throw it on the ground. He does get into that a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> like, um, yeah, there's so many, like, thousands and thousands of empty oxygen bottles yeah, up empty there. oxygen bottles. Dead bodies, bodies. tents, ropes, trash. Like, when the... Feces. Yeah, it's desecrated. Yeah. I mean, like, like, that's what that Sherpa, the orphaned Sherpa yeah, exactly, person yeah. says. Is like, we've allowed people to come and desecrate our holy mother goddess and just, like, yeah. do all this shit to it. Yeah. Although, one, one good thing... Little positive note about um, Adventure Consultants and Mountain Madness and other guides. There recently, I forget who it was, which government it was, maybe the Indian government, started a um, litter removal program. Yeah, I've read, yeah. Read, read a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. so like for every um, oxygen bottle you bring down from the mountain that a Sherpa brings down, they're compensated like 50 bucks or something. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it's resulted in a, a considerable uh, cleanup of yeah. the mountain. So that's good. It's not all bad. Yeah. I don't think I would ever climb it. But yeah, because we don't belong up there. I think some places uh, are best left alone, best admired from below. Yeah. So what I will say, like in the spirit of beautiful animals, there was a lot of heroic actions taken on this trip, especially, I mean, there's the the jury's out, I guess, on uh, Bukharev, but at the very least, Bashir's and the IMAX team, like, yeah, that's... abandoned their whole expedition that they had spent $5 million on yeah. and many, many months of planning and training yeah. just to see if they could save any human lives. And that's exactly, an incredibly yeah. admirable and but a really good way, thing to do. A really good way to have saved those lives would be for those lives to have stayed home and just don't fucking go up there. <laughs> don't go up there. Be beautiful at sea level. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Take yeah. deep breaths. And Unless you really want to, then fucking whatever. Go up there. Do it. Do what you're fucking gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> Just be careful out there, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Uh, I heard. I mean, I overheard a conversation. By overheard a conversation, I mean I listened to a podcast <laughs> where they talked briefly, casually, about um, overhearing. Like, <laughs> well, I wasn't participating. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, they were talking about, like, not necessarily at Everest, but, like, yeah, most mountain climbing expeditions, like, the Sherpas are, I mean, they're the most acclimated to get up there. And so, even if they're not necessarily the first ones to the top, like, yeah. it's the, usually the white person who hired them who's, like, recorded as the first person to reach, like, historically. For the that person. expedition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, like, they take all the credit for it. And it's like, well, even if you were actually the first person to the top, yeah, the Sherpas were carrying all your shit for you. They carried all the shit so you could yeah. get up there. Yeah. yeah. It's true. I think uh, 53, I think, is the number as of the writing of that book. Sherpas have died. Uh, as of the, the writing of that book, 20 years ago? As of the writing of that book, Jeez. 20 years ago, had yeah. died on Mount Everest. Yeah. So working for many... white people expeditions, you know? Yeah. So they bear the greatest toll. Tip your Sherpas, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tip them a lot. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. I know this was uh, a little different than our last few, but yeah. we try to keep everybody on their toes. Yeah, we're, tr- we're trying to come up with all kinds of different shit to talk about. You get to listen to us get dumber and smarter at the same time. Every day. Speaking of dumber. Oh, yeah. You want to open a fortune cookie? <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what? Just for fun, I'm going to go to the first fortune cookie app that I did. I'm going to order Chinese food. <laughs> Good call. What's funny is I actually had a little bit of Chinese food earlier this week, mm-hmm. and I opened the fortune cookie, and it said, international travel is in your future. And oh. I knew it was a fucking lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, your future is a long time, hopefully. Okay, good good call. So, yeah. I don't think it was a fucking <laughs> lie. I mean, you know, yeah, that is a good I point. I bet you at some point you're going to travel outside of the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, Whether you right. like to or not. <laughs> <laughs> By my own will. Yeah, yeah, by your own will and autonomy. Or That's something to keep in otherwise. mind with fortune cookies is the timeline isn't defined usually. Yeah, unless it says, like, you will die on November 15th, 2025. Yeah, which I've only had a couple fortune cookies that said that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's open up this fucker right here. Okay. Ooh. Serious trouble will evade you. Wait, what? Will evade you? Evade, like it'll... It's going to get away from you? Like, serious... Like, are you chasing the serious trouble? Trouble avoids me. Wow. I am the trouble. Damn, you're the one who knocks. That's intense. <laughs> yeah, that's some hardcore shit. I mean, I guess that's good. I'd call that a, a fortunate fortune. Apparently, serious trouble and international travel are both going to <laughs> evade you. <laughs> At least for, for a now. while. For yeah. now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, anyway, yeah, that, right. Was, that was a good little episode there. Having a lot of fun doing this shit. Yeah, and, man. Uh, hey, thank you guys so much for tuning back into us. Yeah. We really appreciate it. We love each and every one of you. We like hearing your emails. Oh, I Send love your us. emails. Yeah, Email thanks everyone that responded to the 16 personalities. Yeah, that was good. What's the email address? Beautifulanimalspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Check us word. out on Instagram. Beautiful.animals.pod. Mm-hmm. And check us out on Twitch at GHTVision and OnlyFans at... We haven't made an OnlyFans yet, but it'll yeah, get we'll there. We'll figure it out. So, yeah. tell You know what? Tell your friends, man. Tell your friends. If you think you know somebody who might like this, listen to our fucking asses, just tell them, you know what? I know some asses you might want to hear. You know what you should do? Don't tell your friends. Just ask your friends, what personality are you? Yeah. Oh, you want to hear about that? <laughs> you know anything about Carl Young? Just lead them into it. like Yeah, yeah. Bring yeah. it up organically. Don't, make yeah. a, don't try and sound like you're promoting us. Anyway. anyway, thank you guys so much. This has been another... Fuck around and find out network broadcast <laughs> brought to you by 
Fuck around and find out now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. You guys are all beautiful. Oh, stay hydrated out there. Get, you know what? Juice it. Pour yourself a glass of water. Drink that water. Mm. Just, just smell it. Slurp it. <laughs> okay. Fuck around. Find out. <laughs>